So, Toy Story 2. Oh boy. They, uh, they sat down and like, alright, let's make this film. Yeah, sure, no problem. Well, alright. Um, you know what? Let's not make this a film. Huh? Yeah, let's make this a direct-to-DVD sequel. Why? Well, those make more money. Let me explain that really quick, on the off chance you don't know. Disney, for a decent period of time there, really jumped on the direct-to-home sequels. They did that with VHS, and they later did that with DVD. And, um, so I don't want to say all of those suck, because that would be derogatory and actually inaccurate, but most of them suck. And the overwhelming majority of them are of lesser quality than the original film. The only reason I say overwhelming majority instead of all is because personal opinion and preference, right? But um, regardless of opinion and preference, they were done a lot more cheaply. Less animators, less money, less talent. Usually in some cases they would completely hire a new cast because the new stars wouldn't have to, you know, wouldn't make the same money the film stars did, and they wouldn't be able to charge extra for being able to do a sequel. So, cheaper, cheaper, less people. <laughs> and they were shorter, too. Which also meant they were cheaper and took less time to make. But they would sell well. You know why? Because Aladdin sold well. Because Lion King sold well. You get the problem. <sighs> Now, I'm not a big fan of this process because it's basically like looking at something and saying, oh, we made a big hit. Quick, let's immediately torpedo any goodwill we have there in exchange for money. And if you've followed my show at all over the last 10 years that I've been doing this at this point, you know that I'm not a big fan of torpedoing goodwill and customer, you know, customer satisfaction and faith in exchange for a quick buck. Now, you could argue whether this is valid or not, but, well, it is worth noting that, historically speaking, the income from the direct-to-DVD things kind of started trickling out a bit. That's okay, they've got an answer for that, too. All they have to do is make them even more cheaply, so they can continue to make more returns. A higher percentage yield, even if they're making less actual money. <sighs> Disney. So they wanted to do that with this, because Toy Story was a smash hit, and... They owned Toy Story. Remember the wonderful uh, rights issues that re resolved the end of Toy Story 1? Yeah. Joe Roth, who was really big on this, he actually is the person who replaced Katzenberg, was like, oh man, I can't wait for this, and I can't wait to push it. It's going to be great. Everything's going to be awesome. Meanwhile, the actual Pixar team is like, okay, okay. Let's keep divvying this up. Now, I already talked about this in A Bug's Life, but they were continuing to do that here and in the next film, which I, well, Monsters, Inc., whenever that's coming out. I think that's the next film. So they wanted to start up another group and another creative lead team and another writer staff team. And again, try to make multiple teams working on multiple movies at the same time, because that's how that works. Now, they already had the rough ideas for uh, Monsters, Inc. already going. And I wrote down his name. Uh, Pete, I don't know how to pronounce this, Doctor? It's not spelled like Doctor, but it sure as hell looks like it's pronounced Doctor. Anyways, Pete Doctor, I'm just going to call him that, um, was already working on the early concept stuff for Monsters, Inc. Stanton was in the middle of Bug's life at this point in time. So they bring in Ash Brannon. Now, if you've paid attention, Stanton is a name you'll be hearing in the future because he kept working with Pixar. And Doctor, however you pronounce it, is someone who kept working with Pixar. He would be seen in the future. And Brannon... Not so much. <laughs> he did this, did a decent job of it, and then bailed. 
Now, you might think, why? I think I have a theory, but let's keep going. So they sat down and they're like, well, how do we, how do we work this script out? And they had a really cool idea. What would, so we've, we've established this premise, right? Concept stories. As we already talked, that's kind of Pixar's shtick, their wheelhouse. So how do we address collectibles for toys? Uh, Lasseter himself apparently was the kind of person who would, you know, put toys up on a shelf and not play with them. In in the wrapping and the original thing and whatnot. I occasionally move these suckers around and make sure they're dusted. That's why the duster's right there. And try to take care of them and maintain them. But some people will just absolutely lock them away. I actually had a friend back in high school who uh, was going to go into film. I hope he got there because he was a cool dude and he had some great ideas. But he used to buy two copies every time he would get an action figure. One would go up on the wall. One he would play with, right? Imagine from the toy's perspective in the Toy Story world, the toy that's stuck in the box and the toy that's out playing. Just picture that for a second. So you can see how the story idea just kind of naturally follows through from that. Remember, Toy Story really is, at its core, always about the motives of the toys. Wanting to be played with and wanting to bring that joy to people's lives. That is the core central pillar, and it remains so for all four films. So, got it. We've got our core idea. And why don't we add something onto that? Hmm. And from this, Jesse's idea kind of came through here. Now, I don't know if Jesse was part of the 12 minutes or not. I'll talk about that in just a second. But either way, they wanted to tack on another idea. What happens when a toy outlasts the person? How many toys do you, or your parents, or your siblings, or children, or whoever, have they outgrown? It's probably not a small number. Now, I'm probably unique here. As I mentioned, I didn't really have toys as a kid. I had rocks and video games. So, you know, that's cool. I do have all my original video games with a couple of exceptions that I lost in the move that I've mentioned a few times. But I don't have the toys anymore for the most part. I have all the stuffed animals. They're still here. In fact, this dude right here. Got him at, uh, it's Dolphy. It's the little kind of teal one. I don't know if you can see it on the camera. Got him at Circus Circus when I was, I want to say 10. Actually, my mother got him for me in a story that I won't bore you with right now. But I imagine that's kind of the exception. Most people outgrow their toys, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, unless the toys are sentient and sapient. How do the toys deal with that? This is where Jesse's story comes from, and ties in the first major thread that will become a major story arc of the next film, Toy Story 3, that is to say. But we won't really go into that just yet. Kind of feels weird arcing my head up this far, because the new camera position. I don't know if you can even tell, but for me, it's like that much difference right there. So I'm kind of trying to get used to it. Please forgive me. Anyways, <clears throat> so we got our script ideas, but we need extra time. See, here's the thing. Woo. Um, somewhere along the line, someone at Disney was like, this is great, let's turn this into a film instead of a direct-to-DVD short. Huh? Now, here's the deal. Pixar didn't want to make the direct-to-DVD thing. But they were told to, and they still didn't really have the negotiating power to go against Disney because, well, Disney is a massive law firm of death. So they didn't really have a lot of power there. And this is going to be a continuing trend up until about 2007 or so. Right now we're still in the 90s. 
Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> so, in order to acquiesce, they made it as a direct-to-DVD film. Then, what's weird about this is I've heard differing accounts about this event. Some people say that Pixar was like, no, we want to make it a movie. Some people say that Disney was like, no, we want to make it a movie. <sighs> Given that there were a lot of negotiation things going on at this point in history... It's actually quite possible that what we're hearing is just echoes from the two different sides that were feuding at this point in history. Because Jobs and Roth, who I mentioned earlier, Joe Roth, he's Katzenberg's replacement, as well as Eisner, were both actively feuding. And Eisner and Jobs would continue to feud until Eisner would leave the company, actually. And then Iger would come in and be a horribly evil human being. So we'll get there. When we get, don't worry, I, I do plan to cover this stuff. So as a part, as, a, as most likely a result of this feud, we're not 100% sure of all the details of what was going on here. This leads nicely into the problem. They wanted to turn this into a full film. They didn't have a full film. Okay, so the, having already spent all this time and work and effort in making the, the much shorter short, now they had to do this. All right. That involved a lot of overhauling, but here's here's where things really go badly. See, they went into, they did some tests, and everyone agreed on the same point. The movie sucked. And they were like, we need we need to bring in the core Toy Story team. We, we need the, the core Pixar team. The, the group that, up until now, hadn't really been working on this. Because they had cycled this off to get another studio working on this to keep the three studios thing going, like I already mentioned before, you know, keeping multiple movies going at the same time. And so they bring in the original staff, who is immediately out of working on A Bug's Life, immediately after working on Toy Story. A little bit of a burnout problem. They come in, and they look at it, and they're like, yeah, we can overhaul it, but we're going to have to overhaul pretty much the whole film to really make this work. And we're going to need an extra 12 minutes of footage. Disney says, okay. And Pixar's like, no, you weren't, you're not listening to me. We need to redo the whole film. Like, we've got some assets and we've got some art design, but this we have to redo the whole film. Okay. <laughs> we don't know the exact reason, but Disney and Jobs were totally unwilling to budge on the release date. That's the problem. If they just delayed uh, Toy Story 2, no issues. But they absolutely 100% refused to delay. And they were contractually obligated to push out the movie. And Pixar, and I don't blame them on this, decided they were unwilling to put out the movie that Toy Story 2 was. They would never attach the Pixar film to a subpar sequel. I'm sorry, I'm looking forward to reading the behind-the-scenes of Cars 2 and Cars 3, because while I've seen those movies, I don't know why, as in why they are what they are. Anyways, so you don't want to compromise on the quality of your film. You can't move the date, and you have to make the film. They made Toy Story 2. Not 100%. Again, a lot of the art assets were done, so a lot of the core, you know, not rendering, but the, the modeling was done. But they had to do all of the animating and the storyboarding and the script rewrites and the re, uh, re, re um, not recasting, uh, re-recording, the re-recording of the lines in order to accommodate the new script in nine months. This is the first time Crunch reared its ugly head for Pixar. Now, I know most of you are probably sick and tired of hearing of Crunch, and that's too goddamn bad because it is a legitimate and actual problem. 
and has been for way too long. It has been entirely too ingrained into society, especially at the corporate level here in the States, and is a legitimately toxic mentality to be stuck in. Here's the funny part. Pixar had a very anti-crunch approach prior to this film. In fact, there was a maximum amount of hours you were allowed to work a week. If you started to get to that point, you were told to go home. If you got to that point, you were sent home. Which, for the record, totally in favor of. So, they crunched for nine months. There have been studies and behind-the-scenes research into just this nine-month period. Investigative. Trying to showcase how bad it got in such a short period of time. People having uh, actual uh, repetitive stress injuries, some people developing carpal. There was a few incidents. The most well-repeated one is the gentleman who accidentally forgot his kid in the car because he was so brain-dead and working on autopilot that he forgot his kid in the car. The kid was fine, don't worry. But none of this was good. And as a direct result of this, something started to change at Pixar. Pixar looked at Disney and was like, we need to be rid of them. We, we've made our money. We are successful. We have a brand. We have a name. And even, and this is smart, actually. Even though they didn't really own the rights to certain things, like they couldn't really do a Toy Story 3, who cares? They're Pixar. Pixar had become a name, especially after Bug's Life proved the formula. Remember I talked about that? And Toy Story 3 would be the third one in the sequence, as I already talked about in the last time. So, with Toy Story 2, which was a financial success, uh, let's see, 90 million budget, 497 million box office, they were able to finally start pushing away from Disney. Because Pixar universally believed that the corporate mentality of Disney, which mandated and over, mm, superseded the creative mandate, was something that could no longer be withstood. The problem is they were stuck in contracts that they signed in desperation when they were trying to get Toy Story made. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because Disney has pulled that exact same trick with multiple studios over many years. For longer than I've been alive. <clears throat> Disney. A <laughs> uh, couple other things happened here. Uh, first of all, let's see here. Look at my notes. Uh, they had a couple other problems, including the fact uh, that there was an accident where they accidentally deleted one of the core data servers. Uh, let me try and explain this. Let's say you're trying to animate a scene, okay? Now, you can have all of the textures and files on your computer and then load them up and then try to do it. Or you can have them all in a central server, which you your computer then references periodically to check for updates and whatnot. Now, the reason that works better is well, there's actually a lot of reasons. First of all, you uh, can have a lot of people working from the same core files, like the image files and the model files and the skeleton files, all over there. And if you need to make a change, you just make a change to the core files, and then everyone who's working on the animations can see the change. And then what should happen is someone's job should be to go around and say, hey, we've adjusted the height of Woody's hat by three centimeters. Be aware of that for your scenes. Do, do, a, do a repass, you know? Or we've been updating. This also allows them to start working and animating even before the core files are done, because you just have a reference tag there. 
this texture should be this file, and this texture should be this file. And you just have a, 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 a placeholder in the interim pointing towards where it will eventually be in the core server. Sounds like there's other benefits here, but I'm just, I wanted to mention that really quickly. Because, well, there is a detriment. If all the files are over there, if those files get deleted, so those files got deleted. No problem. We do regular backups. Oh, the backup wasn't working. I used to do a small amount of side work in data backup recovery. I don't know if you know this, but part of that is daily checks to make sure that the backup goes through and to check to make sure that the file is actually there and working. Daily. <laughs> Nobody was doing that at this point in time at Pixar. For all accounts, because I've heard a few people talk about this incident, they learned their lesson after this one and completely overhauled their data backups processes, which is a good thing. Because right now they're out 80, 90% of their work. Years, literal years, plural of work, gone. They would. This would have been extremely bad. There's a good chance a lot of people have been fired. This could have probably led to actual lawsuits because Disney very law firmy kind of a company, would have no problem contractually deciding to use that as legal ammo to go after Pixar, possibly even trying to, heaven forbid, acquire Pixar. So, as a direct consequence, they were screwed, right? One of the women who was working from home, by total coincidence, happened to have local backups. She had been pulling the files all of those reference files to her. So while her files were a little bit out of date because they weren't being updated with the central server uh, or the, the core, uh, the core server files, she nevertheless had the files at all. So rather than being pushed back two years, they were pushed back like a couple of days. I, I can legitimately imagine what that relief would have felt like. Holy crap. <laughs> By the way, I have a data backup right over there. And the backup to that backup is in my closet. And all I do is make YouTube videos for a living. Well, and streaming, but, you know, the primary part of my show is the streaming. <laughs> but you get my point. I back up all that stuff, and then I back up that backup periodically because... Exhibit A! So that hurdle's covered. Whew, okay. No problem. Now what do we do? Hang on, let's, let's see. What do we got here? What do we got here? Okay, so now we've got to come up with new technology. Particle... Uh, Particle display is something that they were working on for a while and never really found a medium they were happy with. You notice how they just started to get water renderable in A Bug's Life, whereas previously, over in Toy Story, they didn't do water at all. They couldn't. It was just out, outside of the bounds of the technology at the time. So they keep pushing it forward, and once again, they decided to try and come up with a new tech for this particular film. It's a really minor tech, and they only use it for two scenes. Dust. When Woody's up on the uh, the shelf, there's dust there. And when Jessie is under the bed for an extended period of time, there's a layer of dust on her as well. Rendering that added a believability thing, but it also gave them a new tool in their arsenal. Now they could render particles. And what I mean by that is they would render a particle, then they would apply a formula to it to vary it in very small ways and then multiply it by several thousand. And then whew, you can do things like snow, for example. Or fur. Foreshadowing. Anyways, <clears throat> so, having come up with all that, we're good. Everything's cool, right? So, negotiations weren't going super well. 
And um, this is also when Pixar wanted to take more of a percentage, uh, more control over their creative work and claim a larger percentage than the 12.5 they had been allotted. And we'll come back to that. That legal, that debate, that legal battle, the contract battle, is something that would literally rage for years, as I've mentioned a few times. So forgive me for just kind of mentioning it a little bit as we go, because it just kind of keeps coming up and then going on. <clears throat> but um, the... Oh, real quick aside. I mentioned how... So, right. I was going to pull up to this point. They desperately wanted to be free from Disney. I mean, who would blame them? They wanted to make their own stuff. Now, I do think creativity unfettered is a bad thing. I've said that before. I've reviewed Cyberpunk. And, you know, there are other works that it's like that, too. You need a manager. You need an organizer. You need someone to tell you where the limits are and to help keep you coordinated and focused and on task. I firmly and legitimately believe in the value of good management. I always have. But... At the same time, there is such a thing as entirely too much management. And what Disney was doing was pretty unarguably too much management. Oh, by the way, you're probably wondering why the nine-month deadline. We don't actually know, but by all accounts, it was probably the toys. How's that for ironic? Because they had already made contracts with all the other companies, including Mattel this time. And all the other companies already had set up their lines and their factories and their designers to produce all the toys based on the characters so that they would then be able to sell them at a certain street date. And they were unwilling to budge, so Disney was unwilling to budge. So, nine months, we need to get separated from them. The long and the short of this is Disney would be pushed further and further away from control of Pixar right up until about, like I said, 2005-ish. It's kind of vague because there was a delay there, which we'll talk about when we get there. But the long and the short of it is Cars was supposed to be the very last film that had any connection to Disney. Let's keep that in mind for later. So, film comes out, smash success, again, and this is a good time to mention, I already mentioned, I can't remember his name, uh, Raid something, I, I haven't, oh, it's in the other notebook, right, this is a new notebook. Um, back in Toy Story 1, I mentioned that one of their sound designers was one of the people who worked at Lucasfilms during the Star Wars tenure, I talked about that. He was also being promoted up the chain and being more involved with the sound editing and sound mixing, and he really started shoving the Star Wars references in hard. The most obvious places during the intro, but if you pay attention to some of the just the little sound effects that are going through, there's quite a few interspersed throughout the film. No judgment, by the way. It adds a nice, almost unique sound to the film. Because about half the sound effects are kind of cartoony, and then half are not. Are, are just legitimately well-designed sound that just sounds like it should sound. And it, it, it creates a unique tone for the films, and this is something that would go forwards as well. But the film comes out, woo! Okay. Hang on, hang on. How did they manage this? Well, aside from working themselves into literal injury, and nearly a terrible situation for a young child, the other thing they did was they reused a lot of assets and a lot of scripting and storyboarding that was already done. The dream sequence, the TV show. The, so the dream sequence became Woody's dream sequence with the cards. The TV show became the video game. Uh, they brought in, was it Jerry, I think was his name? I wrote it down somewhere. We're going we're gonna to go with Jerry for the time being. They brought in him because they'd already rendered him. Because he was already a model they could just animate, who already had all of the anchor points and all of the textures and meshes and skeleton and done. So, okay. And they did a lot of that. There's actually a lot of reusage of assets, almost entirely in ways that are creative enough that you wouldn't notice unless you're paying attention to it. 
Now that's good. That's actually very inventive and awesome design. I also don't want to sound like I'm being dismissive of Toy Story 2. After all, they went out of their way to try something new. So in addition to the dust particles thing, there was one other thing they really wanted to work on. Terrain. If you've been paying attention, Toy Story occurred in a grand total of about three areas. The one house, which was only partially rendered. The other house, which was even less rendered. And, well, and the gas station and the pizza place, which were actually technically right next to each other. But you get the point, right? So four areas if you want to stretch it. All of those were small scale, and the camera was zoomed in substantially. They were effectively making a theatrical play. Now, no judgment. There's nothing wrong with doing a play in film format. In fact, there's a whole genre of that, which I can't think of the name of right now. But what they wanted to do was more. So they did A Bug's Life, which was the island, (laughs) the city area, and the mariachi band. And that's it. Even less areas than before. Okay, now those areas were denser and more rendered. More of that island was actually designed and crafted than uh, Andy's house. But again, they wanted to push that because until they could get the camera out of the theater play, they just couldn't do certain story ideas. They weren't feasible. Hence this film. This is probably Toy Story 2's biggest overall contribution to the Pixar library in general. Zooming the camera out and letting letting it move more. Because in this film, we have Andy's house. We've got Andy's front yard, which is better rendered than it's ever been before. We've got the neighborhood, which was kind of showcased in a copy-paste sort of thing in the first film. And then we've got the office space and the apartment complex and the elevator construct and the, the street in the city and Al's toy barn and the airport and the airplane. You get the idea. Allowing them to get out into more open areas was a tremendous creative tool for them and why they pushed for it so hard. By the way, all of this is stuff they wanted to do back in Toy Story 1. But, you know, tech and time. So, woo! So we see the video game. Can I just say those are amazing graphics for an SNES game? I mean, I love SNES graphics, but those are impressive. Like, even at at the latest, that would be like PS1, N64-ish era and... Maybe a Dreamcast or a Saturn, I don't know, but I, I don't think they would have been able to pull off that particular level of graphical fidelity. Roll to disbelief. Sorry, dumb joke. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having trouble breathing today because of allergy stuff. You may have heard that already. So I'm trying to give myself pauses to breathe here. It's okay, I hopefully don't have COVID. If I do, you'll know by the time this comes out because I will have died by the time this comes out. It's okay, the video will still come out. That's, that's how that works. Why I do, well, it's one of the reasons I do stuff two years in advance. <clears throat> so the graphics are awesome, and the bots that produce bots, and I see I Robotnik's back. And he's still glowing in the dark, and everything's cool, and then they die, and that's nutso. And then there's a seminar on what to do if you or a part of you is swallowed. Did anyone else catch that? I know that we try not to think too much about, about the world building of these films, but oh my god! Just, just remember, they're at least partially cognizant of limbs. Not all of them are, but some of them are. And in several cases, they literally could just be swallowed, and that's just horrible. Okay, we're cool. We're cool. Nothing going on. Using the blinds as like a Morse code to signal the other houses, that's really cool. That's probably one of the better bits of world building in this particular film. I'd say the third or so best bit of world building here. 
because it helps to indicate and showcase the idea that there is a communications network and that the toys across different households are all trying to connect with each other, regardless of their their kids, right? I don't know. I, I don't have anything to add to that. It's just cool that they've got that kind of information network. We already saw a little bit of that with the Army toys back in 1, but now it's going cross-house, which is even cooler. Meanwhile, we have Buster. <laughs> I do like the fake out there. Buster the dog. It shows up. Like, no, no, he's totally cool. Am I the only one who thinks that the toys and the the animals getting along just kind of makes a weird amount of sense? I mean, neither of them are fully human, but both of them are intelligent and clearly communicative. And you could see how it just kind of lines up. I don't know. It just makes sense in my head. And I kind of like the fact that Buster can understand them and works with them and is far more of an ally than not. Also likes to play a game of Finding Woody, so that's amusing, too. So, you've got five minutes, kiddo. Five minutes, huh? How many of you were those kids where you were told you have X time before you're leaving? And so you'd immediately start playing, thinking, oh, goody, I've got X time left. You'll notice I am not raising my hand for once. My niece, on the other hand, pulls this trick all the time, even to this, well, to last week, actually, would be the most recent time. Can I have a, you know, I've got five more minutes, right? No, 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 no. Uh, kids. Um, so, let's talk about uh, the fact that shelved is a verb with connotations behind it. Now, obviously, the, the, the it, it has a literal meaning. You have been put on the shelf. You've been shelved. But you can tell to the toys it means something else entirely. Everyone is horrified. Oh, my God. Woody got shelved. And the implication is, well, what I alluded to earlier, that you put a toy up on the shelf, that means it's just going to sit there. You're not going to play with it anymore. And imagine again, once again, the core pillar of all the Toy Story films is that idea of them wanting to be played with, them wanting to give joy and happiness to kids. Well, you're up on the shelf. And that happening to Woody, of all people, you can see why this terrifies them so much and why they act like it's such a big deal. And Woody, being Woody, is like playing it off. No, no, no. But obviously this is getting to him more than any of them. He just has to put on the brave face. We also see Mr. Weezer up there, the penguin, and um, the dust. Uh, good particle effect, by the way. But, ooh. This is also an interesting bit of foreshadowing. Later on, spoilers, there will be a plot thread about them going to a museum. Now, we can speculate on that, and I do plan to bring that up again when we get there. But imagine being stuck up on a shelf, in a nice big fancy shelf, in a museum, forever. Never again to play with kids. Now, that may not sound horrific to you or me, but again, I want you to put yourself into the shoes of a toy, whose central, core principle would be denied by such a thing. And you see how the collector's theme kind of starts to get into this as well. You'll notice this is the film that probably has the least applicable themes to real life. Whereas most of Pixar films have themes that easily translate to real life concepts. In this case, it doesn't apply quite literally. I do plan to bring that up later, though. I just wanted to comment on that. Anyways. So, speaking of things that are horrifying to toys, yard sales. 
Now, this is funny because we've already established that birthdays and Christmases are terrifying for fear of the new stuff coming in, which may cause issues for the current. But a yard sale should be equally, if not more terrifying, by virtue of what is leaving. At the same time, there's an interesting asterisk to this, isn't there? Because on the one hand, well, yeah, the yard sale is terrifying because you're leaving your home. But on the other hand, if someone else buys you, that is a chance of someone else finding you and you being played with again, going back to your core purpose. The problem is that is a chance. It is a pure gamble. And such a gamble with something that is effectively your life, I can see why that would be so terrifying, even if it might lead to a good thing or even a better thing, because it's still such a dice roll. I guess the only real equivalent we could have for that in real life would be our, our workplaces. How many times have you worked someplace where it was more or less random luck that determined whether or not you got to keep your job? Now, I had that several times in my life because I used to work in IT. And anybody who knows anything knows about how IT just does this when it comes to a workplace. Oh, my God. We all, I was part of the generation which grew up thinking IT would be the secure jobs, right? That's, that's the sure bet. And then by the time I got out of college, that was the aughts. Yeah, that was an interesting wake-up call. And what's really sad is that hit basically every single one of my friends, too, in basically the exact same way. Hell, it took some of my friends years to finally get an actual IT job to apply their damn degrees. Or in some cases, to not apply their degrees at all. But, you know, whatever. <sighs> so... This then leads to the team continuing to have no idea how to understand Woody, apparently. Oh, no, don't commit suicide, Woody. Ugh, guys, he's clearly going there to rescue someone. Buster is adorable here. I don't like dogs all that much. Don't worry, I don't like cats either. But Buster is adorable here. Then Al finds Woody. And this becomes interesting. First of all, this is admittedly cheating by pulling information from future films, but we find out later that Woody is at least two generations in. And he will further go even further into generations as time goes on. Again, spoilers. But my point is, he's from the freaking 50s. He's been around the block a couple times. He's sort of used to this. But I bring that up because he, there's a line they mention here. Oh, that's an old family toy. We're not getting rid of that one. There's implications and ideas there, and, you know, some people have put out theories which have been torpedoed by other people, and the backstory has been debated for some time. I actually bothered to look it up for this film, and couldn't find a codified backstory that was actually stated by the creators for Woody. I found a whole bunch of theory ones from people who worked at Pixar, but were not actually from the creators, and in at least one case was actually shot down by the creators, but the long and the short of this is that he is an old toy. So, of course, she doesn't let him go. He then offers her $5. Then he offers her 50 We get the impression that Al likes to go to random yard sales specifically for this reason, to try and find any old toys that he might profit from. This is the thing. Al is not a collector. He's not. He's a merchant. He is someone who is trying to make money, and that is his goal, his only goal. Now, I say that with absolute derision because I firmly believe, forgive me, that if your only goal is to procure money, you're doing something wrong. Asterisk. 
if you're in a situation where the only jobs available to you are ones that you hate, then obviously you're going to do that job just because you want to make money. So that's not quite your fault at that point, is it? But you get my point. If you walk into a situation with knowledge and forethought and power, and your only goal is money, piss off. This leads us to Al. He's not an enthusiast. And I'm going to use that word, and I'm going to replace it with another word, geek. Because that is how I use the word geek. A geek is just an enthusiast. Whatever they're into. They could be into cars or planes or video games or computers or space or toys. doesn't matter. That's a geek. A geek is someone who enthuses about something, loves it, cherishes it, enjoys it, and likes to share it with others, usually. That last part isn't mandatory. I like how the film goes out of its way to establish immediately that Al is not a geek. That he is not, he's just like, oh my god, it's the original thing with the original props, I'm going to make so much money, this is so useful. And then he tries to buy it, and she locks it away in a safe, and then he picks the lock, distracts her, picks the lock, and straight up steals it right from under her. So yeah, no, we we have exactly established what kind of personnel is. Side note, Mr. Potato Man continues to suck, because he's terrible. This, so we're going to fast forward a little bit. He gets sent in, and he interacts with Jesse, played by Joan Cusack. Now, Joan Cusack's awesome. I actually like her more than her brother. But um, I will always remember her most from Adam's family. Is that just me? Does anyone remember her role there? Real quick. She nailed that, I think. Yeah, um... They, hmm, so they're, they're talking about that and they're, they're discussing and she's super enthused and kind of creepy. And then we see Kelsey Grammer. I, I mean, <clears throat> Stinky Pete. He's still in the box. Mint in the box. Did you catch that? Sorry, my nose itches. Mint in the box. Go back to that central pillar. Toys. Play with. Fun. Now imagine you've never been removed from your box. That sounds like some kind of hell to me. That actually sounds horrific. Now, I do have a little bit of a claustrophobia problem. I've mentioned that a few times before, like in the aliens rumination. But that is nightmarish to be stuck in there and not just... You know, the, the the physicality of being trapped in a small cell for a long period of time, but also being deprived of your purpose in existing, which actually I can understand very well on a very personal level. That is hell. That is hell right there. Now, I'm not trying to dissuade or speak positively of the villain, but at the same time, at least there is a very understandable motive behind this gentleman. Unlike Al, money, 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 Stinky Pete is someone who is a trauma victim. And we can at least understand partially where he's coming from. But I am, of course, getting ahead of myself. So there's also a nice contrast in the fact that he is very, he's has difficulty moving and functioning and isn't very athletic, which makes sense. He's not used to it. Contrast Jesse and Bullseye, who are both very active and run around like maniacs in every possible possibility. This is further emphasized by the fact that they run around a bunch because neither of them wants to be stuck in the damn box. I'll cover that in just a moment, too. So as a bit of quick and dirty exposition, they really like that in Pixar. 
We see Time and an ad saying, doctors say Americans don't eat enough fat. And Sputnik is mentioned there as well. We then see an ad for sugar, uh, sugar frosted and dipped in chocolate cereal. Okay, in re real talk, that actually sounds kind of gross to me. But then again, I like shredded wheat plains. What the hell do I know? And then they're like, okay, we've got to go rescue him. Call me surprised. Mr. Potato Head actually volunteers to go. I'm, I'm really shocked by that. Anyways, we then see bits of the show. And uh, it, it's actually pretty adorable, I'll give you that. I want you to picture Woody's viewpoint for just a second. To really frame this... And I know this is going to sound like a strange statement, but just bear me out, okay? He didn't know any of this. Imagine one day you walk into a museum or a gift shop or something, and you, you, the real person watching this video right now, find out that there was a show that you are based on. Is You get my point. There's a show that was your life, or it was that you are based You get the idea. And there was a whole line of toys and merchandising and adverts and everything, songs, you know... They did the howdy doody thing for you. Now, I imagine most people's reaction, if you go to the comments, is going to be something snarky or meme related. That's fine. No judgment. But what would your real reaction be to that? Because there's only a few ways to really take that in, and several of them are going to be. Woody's is actually rather subdued, but at the same time, and Tom Hanks nails this, he does the low, quiet tone very well. It's one of his better acting points, I think. Tom Hanks is just like, wow. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's this kind of surprised, happy, but mostly just kind of in shock thing. It speaks very powerfully in the wake of Toy Story 1. Remember, one of the big points of Toy Story 1 was the fact that at the end of the day, Woody, well, he didn't really have a lot of self-esteem, did he? Oh, sure, he was in charge, and he talked big, but he knew that he really wasn't all that special. The only thing that made him special was Andy. He was just a random doll with one voice box, and that's it. As he himself said, how could he ever compete with someone like Buzz Lightyear? And the truth is, he couldn't, objectively. If you're paying attention, this is a similar thread to what Flick goes through over in A Bug's Life. And we'll see this in the future, too, because Pixar likes to hit this point. It's understandable. It's a very relatable point. But my point is, now imagine this person who has gone through all that crap, who has all that worried about himself. And remember, he very recently got injured and put up on the shelf. So you can see how those fears and those worries not only haven't gone away, but they've been reconfirmed, reestablished. Weight has been added to his fears. The only thing, and I'm not sure he was even aware of this, but the only thing that might make him feel less afraid is the fact that Andy's mother flat out adamantly refused to sell him, even when offered $50 for it. It's worth noting he's probably worth more like 2000 so that doesn't surprise me. But the point remains. So in that circumstance, thinking so little of yourself, constantly being afraid of your position and your purpose, then you... See that there's this whole thing. And it's all about you. Now, I, I keep putting this in quotes because it's not actually about Woody. He's just one of the Woody toys. But you get the point, right? It's, it's all his shtick, right? There's a whole deal there. Now, how would that feel? Whew. So, Jesse, this is when Jesse starts to talk about 
how much she doesn't want to get back into storage. I just talked about the claustrophobia thing. Now picture you're stuck in a, a box in a bunch of packing peanuts for a long, long time. Later on in this film, forgive me for spoiling, but later on in this film, there's a bit where Jesse is once again in a box, and when she's let out, she is curled in the corner, terrified, huddled, and shaking. Of course she is. God, that's got to be just the most horrifying feeling. To finally be let out and free and happy and, okay, back in the box. Get back in the box. <sighs> uh, mm. I'd make a Divinity Original Sin 2 joke, but I imagine most of you wouldn't get it here. This is not so. <sighs> so, Al comes back in. You know, you know how you can really tell he's not a geek? He has no appreciation, and he has no care. Now, let me explain that really quick. On the one hand, a geek could be someone who just absolutely loves playing with the toy or, or thing or whatever, right? Now, that can involve damage to the thing because they're so enthusiastic. But they care. Uh, that is to say, they, are, they appreciate it, sorry. They show care by making sure it's properly taken care of. The maintenance thing that I've mentioned several times that Andy did... Now, I, re I bring this up because if you pay attention, Andy and Sid both show both sides of this. Andy showed care, Sid showed enthusiasm, and both of them had fun with their toys in their own ways. Well, Al does neither. He's not here to have fun, he doesn't care, and he manhandles them constantly. And he only tries to pose them in these stupid things and, and close the box, and it's also a cheap stand and cheap box, by the way, because he's a cheapo, in order to try and make money off them once again. This is completely ignoring the fact that he so casually handles them with hands covered in Cheeto dust. Now, I know that's kind of a cliche or whatever you want to call that, but and I know, I know I'm a little bit more clean-centric than some people I know, but I won't even, like, have popcorn grease on my hands when I'm working around my computer. Like, I will finish eating my popcorn... And then I will get up and go wash my freaking hands before I touch anything. I've been doing that since I was a child. Because I don't want Cheeto crap over my SNES controller, you know? Or my NES controller, actually, in my case. But you get the point. Some of my friends... Oh, nah. And that's just, just, that's just nasty. That's ignoring the fact that what I didn't understand at the time was that also means those things don't last. My NES controllers still last. They still work. I can't prove it because the nest isn't up on the display. I've been thinking about actually putting the consoles up here. I have a way to display them. I just haven't decided if I want to do that yet. You know, set design. Nobody cares, I know. Moving on. <clears throat> so. <laughs> There's several sections in this film which are enjoyable, but I don't have much to discuss. They, they get a laugh out of me. Like little gags, like when they're going up the elevator and it's like, I'm going to let go of the thing. He wouldn't. One, he would. You know, that got a laugh out of me. Or the section where um, they're they're sneaking across the, the blocks in order to get to the Al's toy barn. And as they're sneaking, you know, he's like, did we, did we, did Woody give up on me when I was held by Sid? No. Did Woody give up on us? When you threw him out of the back of the moving van. Oh, you had to bring that up. <laughs> I got a laugh out of me. And there's several sequences and little jokes that get a laugh out of me that I just don't have much else to say about. In most cases, almost all of these jokes are a matter of presentation and timing. Not really humor in the sense of a joke. 
And that's okay. I tend to like presentation humor, and I tend to like timing humor. I've actually already analyzed and dissected humor in some other works I've done, so I'm not going to go a full diatribe here. I just wanted to mention that, because most of it is all down to the comedic timing, which they do pretty well. Credit where credit is due. Meanwhile, traffic cones. You know, I'd complain about the bad drivers in the Bay Area, but because, you know, I've been in the Bay Area. I used to live in the Bay Area. But, wow! These people are terrible drivers. And that is a lot of damage for them just crossing the road. Huh. Anyways. So Jerry shows up, starts cleaning Woody. Random thought. Does that feel like a spa treatment to a toy? I mean, it's kind of horrifying, and they show it in a horrifying light, you know, getting the uh, isopropyl on his eyes and, and cleaning him out and all that. But at the same time, he's a toy. I really do wonder if that's the kind of thing that would just be like, ah, you know, relaxing to them. Just food for thought. There's also a bit I have to comment on because I'm primarily a video game person. Uh, that's true in real life, not just professionally. There's a bit where uh, Rex is like, oh, they make the games so you can't beat them without strategy guides. Now, that's not really true. I would argue very strongly that well-designed games don't have that problem. However, there are a fairly large number of games that have what I call walkthrough-itis. A.K.A. you need a walkthrough to know what you're doing, or someone tells you, or you've played the game before, right? And it's a pretty big problem for games, ironically, especially in the SNES era. The thing is, the reason I have to comment on that is because, man, you remember when that was the only thing that gaming companies were doing to screw us over? Weren't those the good old days? Anyways... <clears throat> So, Buzz 2 shows up, way overstocked, by the way. Nice little jab at the toy makers. And Buzz 2 has the exact same issues from Buzz 1 that Buzz 1 used to have. Call me a weirdo, but I'm going to go ahead and say that this is... So, I gave my theory about why Buzz was the way he was, and about why toys are the way they are, back in Toy Story 1. A decent amount of that theory actually comes from the way Buzz 2 operates in this very film. Because he operates in more or less the exact same manner, and so does Zerg, until the two start to coordinate, and then... So, I've always kind of thought that that's the general direction that was going from. I always wonder what happened to those two, but we'll talk about that later. Maybe. <clears throat> Anyways, so then there's the Barbies. Lots of Barbies. Holy crap. Poor Barbie tour guide. Hold your questions until the end of the tour. I mentioned gags. I'll give you the dinosaur overboard gag, the Jurassic Park reference. I tend to like referential humor. And forgive me for discussing humor for just a second. But referential humor, in my opinion, tends to work on two axes, okay? One is the more esoteric the reference. So if you reference, you know, Monty Python or Star Wars or something really obvious, like, will the force be with you? That's really low on the scale, and thus the overall impact is much lower. If you reference something really unknown, that or in a way that only people who are familiar with it are going to get it, well, then it's like, aha! And that tends to increase the overall enjoyment. But the second axis is how exactly the reference is used. This is a little harder to track mathematically. This is something you could just assign a number value to. This is a little harder to. But if we could assign a number value to it, this is how it's applied. If someone walks up in the middle of a film and says, may the force be with you, then that's terrible. It's, there's no good reference there. If... 
and I don't have an example off the top of my head. But if they use it in a clever way, in a way that makes sense for the scene that's happening, in a way that actually lines up with what's happening, then that's more clever and further out here. And thus you can see how these two things increase the overall relative enjoyment of the particular reference. With me? And thus something really esoteric that's used very well, or would do very, very well, would be way up here, and something that's esoteric that is eh, decently presented would be over here, and then something really well presented that really obvious would be down here. All three of those are still a good overall value. With me? The reason I bring this up here is this is a relatively normal reference. It's something that a lot of people are going to get, the Jurassic Park reference, especially when this film came out. But at the same time, they do a decent amount to set it up, and they do a decent amount to pay it off. This is, I'd say, middle to high usage of the reference. Hence, decent value and people actually getting a laugh from it. Sense make? What well, you, you guys and gals and everything in between asked me to analyze humor several times. So I did my homework, okay? <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, every time that comes up, I've been trying to use it. It doesn't come up in my job all that often. And when you discuss humor with your friends, the, the conversation dies very quickly. Oh, God. I think I'm getting boring. Now, today, we will discuss the exact measures of the types of humor that exist within flatulence. Chapter 1. And Chapter 1 is probably my least favorite part of this film. Buzz 2. Buzz 2 is... this. It's the... It's it's a blah, blah, blah. it's something that pisses me off most over in Star Trek. If you've watched any of my Star Trek stuff, you've seen me complain about this probably at least somewhere because it shows up at least once per every show I've ever covered for Trek. And that is when someone has been mind controlled or replaced by a duplicate or is on drugs or is drunk or something is not their original self. Nobody notices. And God almighty, I hate that trope so much. And the more I see it, the more I hate it. It's gotten to the point now where when I see it not done, it's like a breath of relief. Oh, thank God they're not doing the trope. So Buzz 2 is not Buzz 1. Then nobody notices. <sighs> Whatever. That being said, Buzz's fate is legitimately terrifying. He's strapped in and locked into a box, fully aware and cognizant. Thankfully, he gets out relatively effortlessly, but... I remember when I first saw that in the theaters, and I was—I basically shook in just the manner I just did. It was, God, that's horrible. And of course, it could only go worse from there. Imagine he got bought by some random kid, and just ugh, worse. So, Jesse wants to get one last look at the sun. This is when the song plays, and we get Jesse's backstory. In many ways, I feel like this is a precursor to the beginning of Up, which I've already covered by this point in time, a couple of years ago, a year ago, something like that. And that, brilliant, that is absolutely brilliant. This isn't as good, but it feels in many ways like a prototype of the same construct that the Up intro was. Effectively, no dialogue, just a song and visuals. Now, the, the lyrics in the song give it away, whereas in Up, there were no lyrics. You just had to pull it from what was going on in the excellent cinematography on display. But here, we notice that this girl, several bits of exposition are gotten across uh, very efficiently and quickly. 
we find out that she's not, she doesn't have a lot of friends and she's not got a lot of toys and a lot of things, but what she has is well kept and taken care of. So while she doesn't have the kind of money that Andy or Andy's mother has, she nevertheless does have the same care for her toys like Andy does. Then she gets a friend and then she starts getting to other stuff. Her interests shift and become more girly. Quick aside, did you notice all the posters and music stuff she puts up? That's all 60s stuff. Think about that. This film occurs when it came out. That's the timeline. That's why Toy Story 3 actually occurs many, many years later, because Toy Story 3 came out many, many years later. They've kept to that pretty consistently with the four Toy Story films. So that means that she's been dealing with this problem for in the decades range. It's also possible that she has been in storage for the decades range. And yet, there's one last thing, which almost could be considered a twist of the knife, when she's found. Now, I've talked about this concept before. In fact, I've talked about this concept a couple days ago in one of the other ruminations I did this year. Uh, it was aliens. It's when things are bad, but then there's the relief. It's okay, it's okay. And then you find out, no, it's much worse than it was. That feeling, that hope spot, is just horrific. It's, it's just one of the worst feelings. And that's what she goes through. Oh, thank God she found me, and, and she can be my kid again, and everything's going to be great. And then she's put out with the box, along with all the other things to be donated. Now, that's the twist, and oh, that's got to hurt so much. And I don't blame Jessie for not catching on to this, but you notice that she actually took her out to a donation front so that she could get out there and be a toy for someone else instead of just tossing her in the trash. Let's be honest with ourselves. Plenty of kids... I've seen this personally, will just toss toys when they're done with them or when their parents call to them to, to do that. Or they'll do a yard sale. Not that that's really a thing anymore, but you get the point. It was back then, wasn't it? Interesting. I talked about the Pixar tears back in A Bug's Life. I think I'm going to go ahead and beeline this as the first Pixar tears scene. I'm curious how many of you pointed this scene back when I asked that question a couple weeks ago in A Bug's Life, which is earlier today by my perspective. But, I, yeah, I think this is definitively the first time the Pixar Tears really comes in. The, the moment, the emotional core moment that just gets you right in the feels. That is Pixar's, one of Pixar's hallmarks now. It'll actually be interesting to see how this moment, or if this moment is carried forward from this point going on. Because... I didn't even remember that. I didn't even remember that hitting as, as hard as it did until I actually rewatched this film and... <sighs> wow. This is also the first time Toy Story, in my opinion, officially embraces what would eventually become one of its major themes and would arguably, the, arguably be the major theme of Toy Story 3. Parenthood. So I mentioned earlier that we don't quite have an equivalent for what the toys are and how they feel. There is something that comes close. It's, it's not, it's, I'm not saying it's lesser, I'm saying it's different. And that is being a parent, being a primary guardian for a younger person. You know, whether it's an older sibling, or it's a very close friend, or it's an uncle, or it's a, you know, a parent. Someone who has that bond. And, and you know, just wants to be with that someone and watches it slowly slip away over time. Sometimes it slips away in into something new. You know, some people have pretty good relationships with their parents. Sometimes it goes away entirely. 
And that depends on so many different variables. And it's always that risk, isn't it? I'll come back to that a little bit later. For now, <clears throat> for now, this gets us back to uh, the big crisis. Kunishi, the gentleman in Japan, wants to buy these suckers for his museum. Side note, Kunishi's a geek. Even in the very brief interactions, most of which we hear the other side of the conversation from, he does actually have a voice actor, and you can't hear his voice a few times, but even from these extremely brief, brief interactions, you can tell automatically that Konishi is a legitimate enthusiast, unlike Al. If nothing else, it makes me think that the museum fate wouldn't have been terrible, even though it could have been terrible. I mean, it's really easy to see how that could go badly. I mean, if nothing else, what if the cam the uh, security cams were always on so they could never move? <laughs> Anywho, <clears throat> so, we have some good gags. Use your head, bonk! And there's also this nice bit. So, they've been dis mistaking Buzz this whole time. And then, you know, the real Buzz. Buzz 1 shows up. And they're like, Buzz? And thankfully, rather than having the whole, oh my gosh, which one is one thing, which, again, always irritates me instead... Buzz just pops the helmet on the other one and then shows off his shoe. And it's like, Buzz! <laughs> Thank you, Buzz. <sighs> it's funny because Buzz consistently has a brain until the fourth movie, in which place he spontaneously loses it. I'm not sure where that came from, but whatever. This... Uh... <laughs> this leads to the big confrontation between Buzz and Woody. You are a toy! Nice symmetry. I'll give you that. And it works quite well. And again, speaks to the central pillar, which these films never get away from. But we see two competing issues here. The one is Andy's... Uh, well, well, let's actually come back to that. The one is the others. He doesn't want Jesse and Bullseye and the Prospector to be tossed back into the bin. You know, that's just cruel, and he wouldn't wish that upon anybody. It is, of course, the obvious solution to ask them to come with, which he then does. The thing is, and I'll come back to that in just a second, though. The other fear is really the big one here. He is afraid of losing Andy. This is when that parenthood point gets hit a little bit harder. He has a line I wrote down, just to make the point here. I can't stop Andy from growing up, but I wouldn't miss it for the world. Right there. That's the parenthood thing right there and hits the nail square on the head. So, da-da-da, turns out Pete, that is to say, the prospector is the villain. This is when he kind of displays his mentality. Now, this is probably one of the weakest parts of the film, if I'm being completely blunt. The prospector being the villain twist doesn't really add anything and also kind of comes out of absolutely nowhere. He is portrayed multiple times in his subsequent scenes after this point as being someone who believes kids are terrifying, dangerous things who damage their toys and can't be trusted. Where does that come from? And why? Now, we could say that he just became effectively paranoiac while he was stuck in a jar the whole time. But the thing is, what really weirds me out is he has a line. I spent a lifetime on a dime store shelf watching every other toy be sold. Never again. Now, that makes sense. That, that makes absolutely perfect sense. He has gone through hell, as we've already discussed. So, he doesn't want to go back to that. He doesn't want to go through that. But then, 
this conflicts with the other lines. And if I might be so bold, I feel like several sections of the script at this point of the film were part of that crunch slash rewrite problem that I mentioned earlier. Excuse me, problems, because they're two you know, separate problems. <sighs> Either way, the film kind of starts racing through things. Um, some of the Zerg jerks jokes got me. No! You got me there. And um, we have a little bit of complexity here. We've got the... Uh, the fragile sticker thing. This is when I talk about the different areas they've been to, which I already mentioned. Um, this then leads to the tech test. Remember, Pixar is always trying to push the technology forward and is constantly trying to improve, not just in the specifics of what they can do, but to do new things that they weren't able to do before. I, I, I don't know how to describe this, it, and I'm an idiot, so please forgive me for stumbling through this. But the, the particle thing was an example of that, and the larger terrain thing is an example of that. But there's a third thing that I deliberately didn't mention until right now. The luggage sequence. They wanted to show a massive sequence with lots of moving parts, all moving simultaneously and keeping track of everything. And they wanted to do that kind of thing because that'll come up in Monsters, Inc. And, of course, they wanted to push the tech forward. This is another tool that they can develop to add to their creative arsenal. This sequence, when they're going through the luggage compartment, took an average of 70 hours per, per frame to render. <sighs> for those of you not aware, those CGI intro things I tend to do for most of my Star Trek videos, yeah, those take, uh, on average, about a week to render. So, yeah. <clears throat> Anywho. So, he he's like, no, nah, toys get destroyed by kids, and he's grabbed by a kid and taken off to be with the kid. Okay, that's cool. You um you wonder because it's portrayed as if it's this big karmic retribution thing. <laughs> now you have to be with the kid. Maybe I'm the cynic here, but I like to think that once he discovered what it's like to actually play with and be played with by a kid, actually to have the core central element of what and who he is, that he actually liked it and enjoyed it and started to mellow a little bit and had, you know, an actual decent ending. Anyways, this then leads immediately into Jesse freaking out. I already talked about that earlier. And believability being stretched to the absolute thinnest as Bullseye manages to keep up with an airplane just prior to the airplane taking off. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> nice camera shot. Camera pulls out. We see the luggage carrier at the next door. I don't even want to think about how much of an issue that was for those neighbors. And it also, one last point. I mentioned how the toys and the animals would get along. It just occurred to me. It makes a lot of sense that toys would play video games in their spare time. But no, think about it. It's a perfect fit. It lets them do something and actually engage themselves mentally and, and physically. While at the same time staying contained in, a, in, in the room because they can't safely leave the room. So, yeah, okay, that, that kind of works. It's kind of an early COVID sort of a thing. Jessie has been stuck indoors for probably in the decades range. And I only point that out because the way she so aggressively embraces playing in every way, just, just opening the door to let, to let Buster out is just a, yes, let's go do that. Yahoo! Well, wouldn't you? So that ends the film. Decent film. We have a admittedly relatively weak mid-credit scene where they go through the usual stuff. Um, there were a couple of gags there that actually caught me. First was the P Mr. Potato, the TARDIS. But the second one was the Bugs Life thing. Hey, we've got Bugs Life too. Well, it's not Bugs Life too. What do you mean? Camera zooms out. Wah! 
Okay, you got me there. So that's been Toy Story 2. Probably one of the weakest ones so far. And, that, and keep in mind, both of the films I've already covered have been relatively weak, too. Oh, don't mistake me, there's some good stuff here, but so far I haven't seen something that would qualify as the biggie for me. Not yet. I do hope you will join me next time when we cover whichever film is next. I don't know off the top of my head, and I will see you there.